When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to all of my premium subscribers and another episode of Conspiracy Unlimited Plus. Alicia Adetan, documentary filmmaker from Think Again Productions, is here and we're going to spend the next 40 minutes or so discussing the Antichrist. Ali, welcome. Thank you for having me, Richard. It's always a pleasure to be with you. So it's interesting that the Antichrist is mentioned very few times, I think a total of three times in the Bible. He's not even mentioned in Revelations by name. So where do we first learn about the Antichrist? Well, you know, it's the Bible is designed like a puzzle. Um, uh, and I think the Lord designed the Bible as a puzzle because it points to the divine authorship. If one person, you know, had written everything down, would say, well, these are the ideas of so-and-so. But by giving a piece of the puzzle to different prophets and different teachers throughout history and then connecting them together, they even themselves didn't know what they're writing about because they had a piece of the program. But when you connect the scripture together, a cohesive image, a cohesive message appears, which points to the fact that all of these broken pieces had one author, God, behind it. So when we look into this puzzle, we see that such a character is mentioned really from all the way from the book of Genesis, uh, where the character of Nimrod may even be a type of this, you know, uh, final world leader, all the way into the Gospels, all the way through, you know, the scriptures, because even Jewish thinkers and writers from the Dead Sea Scrolls mention him. You know, um, for instance, uh, King David in his Psalms, in the second Psalm of the book of Psalms, he said, you know, why do the nations rage and gather against God and against his Messiah, his anointed? Um, so David already saw a time where the nations would gather against the anointed of God. And that, uh, of course, has been happening for 2000 years and it will have a climactic end. But when you we look into the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see that there is a scroll that talks about um, the king of the king of the nations, the same way that the king of kings is the title of the son of God, the king of the king of the nations, is this commentary on Psalm 2 in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it goes on in detail, I can read it, where this writer 2,000 years ago imagines that all these nations that gather against God and against his Messiah must be led by somebody that he then calls the king of the king of the nations. So even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had it because all over the scriptures, they could see it. And so into the Gospels, the Lord talks about it. And he says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the Holy of Holies, it's a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, which then is his way of pointing to the fact that Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of such a character. And Paul talks about him when he says, you know, that let no one uh, in, in any way deceive you, 
for it will not come, meaning the end times, meaning the, the coming of the Lord. Um, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So it's, there's a nemesis that the Lord comes to defeat. And of course, the book of Revelation calls him the beast. Right. And yeah, Revelation it, calls him the beast. But as I mentioned, he's, he's only mentioned by name, the Antichrist, three times. Why do you suppose that is? Why, why, do, why don't they just come out in, in the Bible? Why doesn't God just name him in Revelation? Why does he call him the beast and not the Antichrist? Any thoughts on that? For two, yes, two, two, two thoughts. Um, the different books provide us different camera angles into the same phenomenon that completes the picture for us, each instructing us of a different dimension of, of this story. It's the consistency of the metaphors and the consistency of the whole story and the cast of characters that allows us to say, oh, all of these characters are, for, are, are about you know this. For instance, the Messiah, he's called the branch. You know, out of the root of Jesse will come a branch, Netzer, which is which is a term that we see often. It's a code word. And every time you see it, you know, you go, it's a branch. He's also called a stone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay. So so he's called the branch. He's called the stone. He's called the shepherd. He, okay. So each time we see, you know, the shepherd, because, you know, he shepherds the people of God. Okay. So he's the good shepherd. He is the stone. He's the branch. Um, Jesus said to Nicodemus that, you know, he, I will be lifted up like the snake that Moses lifted up, the bronze snake in the book of Numbers. So, oh, well, now that is him. Um, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God. He's called the Lamb of God. Even in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Why? Even the, even John the Baptist, who himself is a priest, um, and his parents are both priests. So he's a double priest. Um as the first thing, when he sees Jesus, the first thing he says is here, behold, the lamb of God. He's identifying the Passover lamb as priests would before the sacrifice. So why would he be called the lamb? He, you know, the good shepherd, the king, the line of Judah, the stone, um, uh, the branch, uh, the snakes, because they all will give us a different clue of the one character. The same is true for the way that this nemesis is constructed for us. In fact, I would say the first mention of him is actually in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says that he'll put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Actually, that is the first mention of him in the Bible, but that's not really quite clear then until you read a lot more of Scripture as it unfolds and God adds and adds and adds. And so you start to see, so why is he called the beast? Because of two reasons. One in that context of that passage in Revelation, we see that what is described is his imperial nature and his imperial system. Um, he's not just a man. He's the head of, a, of, a, of, of an empire, of a world order, of a political system. And that is described. And there's a consistency in the way it's described. There are seven heads, um, which, which represent kind of like you know, seven world systems, like let's say the Roman Empire, it can be a head, but it has many kings ruled over Rome over the centuries, right? So each one of those is a horn, okay? So the horns represent kings and kingdoms. 
the heads represent more the worldview, the empire, the context out of which those specific kings and kingdoms emerge. And so, so there are seven heads and ten horns, and consistently, and that is always mentioned. So, so there's no confusion. We just have to figure out how to apply this to history properly. But we're, but it's always the same system of metaphor. And so, the beast is a metaphor that teaches us about the the fact that he's the head of an empire, and perhaps it's a code term for the fact that. He is actually has a Nephilim bloodline in him. And that's why it's called the beast because the, the, of the Nephilim bloodline. So that's, that's another dimension of that particular card. The Antichrist in the letter of John three times, as you said, he's, he's called the Antichristus. And the word anti in Greek in, means two things, actually. It means against, opposite. Uh, but it also means instead of, pseudo. In Greek, it means both. If you, even if you look it up just on Google, it'll tell you it means both. So he, he says, you know what? You don't need to believe in God. You can believe in this other religion, in this other concept. Oh, you know, the aliens will save us. Islam will save us. Uh, human philosophy will save us. We will save each other. Science will save us. Genetics will have the code to immortality. Uh, you know, it, it, it seeks to be to replace God. And so those passages teach us about the nature and the spirit of his message and of his kingdom, that it is one in which it is opposite, oppositional to God, but also one more step. It seeks to replace God as the savior of the human race, as the object of worship. So that teaches us about that. The beast teaches us about his empire. So each characteristic each title gives us another piece of the puzzle of how we are to understand you know this one man and his one empire so as you mentioned the antichrist is central to uh, an apocalyptic worldview it sees human history as the struggle between god and satan for the the fate of mankind does the bible talk about uh, Satan's chief agent on earth, the Antichrist, as forming this one world uh, government, this one world system that we, we hear so much about. Okay. Is it specific okay. about that? Yes. It, what does it say about the nature of his empire? It's interesting. If we want to look at that part of the puzzle, I would say definitely there was a world before the flood. There was Nephilim kings, but it's a little bit hard to bring that out so as far as the bible is concerned i would say nimrod is the first prototype and nimrod's word uh, name in hebrew means he who rebels against god so he, there's something you know embedded in his name and so in the days of nimrod it says the beginning of his kingdom was and so it teaches us that nimrod was the builder of empire and world system you know, Babel, Erech, Kalne, all of these cities that we've discovered in Mesopotamia, Babylon was built by Nimrod, but it was the beginning of his kingdom. It wasn't just a city, like, like Cain built a city, it says in the Bible, but Nimrod built a kingdom. And he then, we are told in an extra biblical book called the Book of Jubilee, which, you know, is not scripture, but, you know, it's there, that he gathered the nations against God and Josephus, you know, the historian, yes. 
who, yes. who documented the fall of Jerusalem by the hands of the Romans. He was a Jewish zealot, you know, he, he, you know and he, he told all of his followers, the Romans are about to take us, kill yourselves, and I'll kill myself. But when they all did, he didn't. He surrendered. And then he went from being a Jewish zealot to serve the emperor as a historian of the Jews and record what the Romans were doing to the Jews. And he wrote, you know, the Jewish war. And so this is what Josephus says of Nimrod. Now it was Nimrod who excited them, meaning the people, to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham. It says that in the book of Genesis, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it were through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into constant dependence on his power. He also said he would be, he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. For that he would build a tower too high for the waters to reach. And that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. And they built a tower neither sparing any pains nor being in any degree negligent about the work. And by reason of the multitude of hands employed in it, it grew very high sooner than any one could expect. But the thickness of it was so great and it was so strongly built that thereby its great height seemed upon the view to be less than it really was, etc. It was built a uh, burnt brick. And so he gathers the world in rebellion against God. And he says, you know what? He destroyed our forefathers before the flood. And he becomes the type of this character because as we read about him in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, one of the characteristics that keeps coming to mind is that he is very boastful against God and he boasts against God. So he is the creator of a kingdom, of an empire. That's what we see with Nimrod. As we go forward, um, we see in the book of Daniel some more details about this empire, about you know its construct. So... Daniel lives at a time in the 6th century where um, Babylon is the master of the world and God allows Babylon to destroy Jerusalem and Daniel's taken captive. And there, there's a series of visions and dreams that come to the king of Babylon and to Daniel himself that talk about four empires from then to the time of the Messiah's kingdom. So when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom on the earth and deals with this nemesis that Paul talks about, that he humbles with the breath of his mouth and all that, well, there are four kingdoms um, mentioned from the time of Daniel until this Messiah comes. And this uh, is the kingdom of Babylon is the first one there. And then Babylon is conquered by the Persians and the Medes who become the second empire. And then they're conquered by Alexander the Great of Macedon. And now you have the third empire. And of course, in 116, before the time of the Messiah, Athens falls to Rome and we enter into the, the fourth kingdom. Um, when God said that those who bless Israel 
will be blessed and those who curse his rule will be cursed. God put that protection over Israel because they have a role to play in this war. And so when Rome scattered Israel, um, God scattered Rome into pieces. And so the Western pieces of Rome became Europe. And it's interesting that they're kind of like, when you look at the Western part of Rome, um, after the city of Rome falls, there are these tribes, the Visigoths and the Franks and all these guys. And there's like 10 tribes, you know, that, that rise. And they, through the teachings of the Pope, take on Roman ways and Rome continues and they all bear the eagle of Rome. Um, but it's in a scattered way. They each are like, you know, a piece of, of this Rome that's like Humpty Dumpty, you know, fallen and scattered like God, you know, Rome scatters the Jews and God scatters Rome, it seems. And and the, they they continue to grow and they each, each head for a moment has a say, you know, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French. Well, it really begins with Charlemagne and the Franks, the Holy Roman Empire. And from there, you know, the, the Merovingians, for instance, um, they say that, um, you know, the first, the Merovingians, the first kind of offshoot, they say that actually um, this uh, creature that is a water bull came and impregnated the woman who gave uh, birth to the king who founded the Merovingian dynasty. So the, so you get kind of the symbology that in pagan symbology is associated with Zeus and the fallen angels. So there seems to be kind of this spiritual echo in the pagan literature that, you know, this was something, it had something behind it, but it kind of grows. And then, then Napoleon, then you have Britain. And, and from there, you know, you have the United States and the Eagle of Rome. And all of these powers are simultaneously in existence in hierarchy right but this is kind of like the western part of the roman empire the eastern part of it constantinopolis falls to the armies of islam in 1453 so the princess of the house of byzantium you know moves to russia to moscow where they say you know we are going to make you um, we're, we will be the custodians of Christianity now that Constantinopolis has fallen. And they declare themselves the third Rome, adopting her. And they then take the title of Caesar, or as the Slavics pronounce it, Tsar. And, you know, the Germans, of course, they like to call it Kaiser. And we in English continue to use kind of the Latin Caesar. Um, so so the the new... Uh, kind of Rome the you know goes from Moscow and you see the two-headed eagle on the shield of Moscow and if you're kind of to draw a line in the middle of the Balfour's River uh, where, where you know Istanbul is on right between Asia and Europe and you know there's the Bosphorus Strait on one side is Asia on the other side is Europe well all of these Roman centers from Moscow through all of the European capitals, all the way into Washington, they are all exactly west of this line. And the Persian Empire went all the way just to Asia Minor, exactly where that line is, was the extremity. Sounds like you're saying that we're still living under a Roman Empire system. Well, this is going to come together. 
right, is going to come together. And I just wanted to kind of give this history lesson to set it up so that when we look into what Daniel and the Revelation are saying, we now know what we're talking about. In Daniel chapter 7, we get this kind of back window look into the empire. Um, um, you know, the, 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 the dream of the king of Babylon is very glorious. He sees a statue, a head of gold, you know, the king of Babylon is the head of gold, the arms of, you know, silver and bronze, uh, of silver, which is the Persians and the Medes, the stomach of bronze, which is in the thighs of bronze, you know, the Greeks, and then the, the legs of iron, which are Rome, and then the ten toes, which are, we are told the ten kings that will be ruling when the stone, which represents the Messiah, the pebble comes and hits them, and then the whole thing falls. So we know that, you know, there's, there is, this is, but in the book of, uh, in chapter seven, Daniel gets a vision also. And he sees kind of the beast-like nature of these empires, not the glory of it. And he sees the beasts and then um, he sees the fourth one, the fourth beast. And each one of these beasts is described as an animal. Um, it says that, um, the, so I was looking in my vision at night, behold, there were four winds of the heaven were churning upon the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the others. The first was like a lion, uh, and it goes on to give us some details about that. Um, um, with eagle's wings, as I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was lifted off the ground. It was made to stand on its two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given to him. Um, and if that represents Babylon, the head of gold, then what we see is that Nebuchadnezzar, we are told, the king was very proud that he built this kingdom. And God humbled him by turning him into a beast for seven years. He roamed you know, and his regents ruled for him and he would like eat grass like animals from the ground and eat water from the rivers. And then he was again restored. The mind of man was given to him so that he may know that God is over him. Right. And so people say, oh, well, look, this lion, he, he kind of experiences that. And then the second one is, you know, a bear. Uh, the second beast is like a bear and, and he and he's raised upon the side. And he has three ribs. And then the third one is like a leopard. And it has he has four wings, like that of a bird. And, and so the third empire, that of Alexander, you know, he had four generals that took over the empire after he died. And then the fourth one is terrifying, frightening, tremendously strong. It, it, it has large iron teeth. It devours and crushes everything. And it really scares him. It's very different from the other beasts. And um, later on, he asks this angel, what was the fourth empire? And the angel says to him, these large beasts, four number are four kings that will rise from the earth. So the angel tells him, these are four kings, four kingdoms. But the, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast that was different from all the other, exceedingly terrifying, with iron teeth and bronze claws, which broke in pieces and devoured and then stomped with its feet anything that remained. Of the ten horns on its head, right? So the fourth empire has ten horns. 
and we see in the book of Revelation that this that you know there's there's the ten horns uh um uh, the ten horns on its head the other horn that sprung up before which three others fell so there's the fourth empire has ten kings ten power centers three of them fall and then a small horn rises so there's eight horns and it says that this little horn spoke arrogant things and its appearance was more imposing than the other companions and as i was watching that horn was waging war against the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was rendered in favor of the saints of the most high so this is one of the mentions and that's why he's called the little horn because he appears here and we are told that he will speak words against the most high and will continuously harass the saints of the most high and will try to change the appointed times and the laws and the saints will be handed over to him for a time and a time and a time and a half which is three and a half years and so this is this is something that 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 we see as a recurring theme each time this guy is mentioned like paul says that the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. But we are told that when this little horn comes to power, God passes judgment, destroys the imperial system, and gives it to the people of God, like the rulership. So it must kind of be the same. And, and it says that, you know, he, he, he speaks uh, all kinds of bold things. We are told in the book of Revelation that he speaks in an arrogant way, that he speaks against God, that he makes war against uh, the, the, God and his angels, like it says that, and all those who dwell in heaven. And, and we see, well, there, it seems that it's talking about the same guy that we, we hear about here, but this guy rises out of the fourth kingdom. He rises out of this beast that is different from the other ones. And it is a very ferocious beast and, and there are 10 power centers and three of them fall for him to rise. So these are all clues of his empire. Well, what are those, where do those clues lead us? For many years, people believe that the 10 horns might refer to the European Union, although there are more than 10 countries in the European Union, but I suppose you could pick 10 you know, powerful economies within the EU. Some have suggested that the Antichrist will will arise from the Mideast. So what is what are the 10 horns? Is that OPEC? Okay. I don't know. So um, it's a little bit ahead of us. That's why we can't fully see it because it's a little bit ahead of us. So there are 10 power centers, 10 nations, 10 governments. That's the easiest way of putting it. Um, um, I'll tell you in a second where I think they are, but just to, because the Bible continuously deciphers itself for us. For instance, in chapter eight, the next chapter, we see that the uh, God zooms in to two of these beasts, the Persians and the Greeks. And we now get two new animals. And one of them has two horns. And we are told that each one horn represents the Persians. God says that. And the other one represents the Medes. So we see, wow, horns represent power centers. And then there is another one that comes with a ram with only one horn. And it says that that's, that's the Greek. 
And of course, we know Alexander comes and he breaks the Persians and the Medes. But then it says that the horn of the one that came, the one horn gets broken into four little horns. And that's when we see the four generals take over. So the Bible is teaching us, oh, the horns represent kings, kingdoms, military might. Like here it says, the ram that you saw with the two horns stands for the kings of Media and Persia. That's what the angel tells him. The buck, the male goat, is the king of Greece. That's Alexander. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander. The four horns that replace the one that was broken represent four kingdoms that will arise from this nation, though not with its power. So the four kings that will arise after Alexander are not as powerful as him, but they will rise from his kingdom. So this deciphers for us. Horns represent kings and kingdoms. Okay, great. We now know that. Two, because oh, it says that, you know, the king and kingdoms, um, they, they have military power. That's why they go to war with each other. That's the difference between a head and a horn. The horn has military power. And so, so it's a king, a, a government leader, someone that commands the military, and someone that represents a power center, right? So we know that, that the Persian Empire is given Mesopotamia. We know that the Greeks then come and dominate them. They never, you see, the Persian Empire is never destroyed. Um, Alexander marries Roxanne, a Persian woman, and the uh, Persians enter into their second phase of imperial history. It's called Greek Persia, where all the aristocratics family of Persia are bloodline connected to important Greek families. And but they continue to to live and, and the Persians continue to compete all the way with the Greeks and, and they continue to compete with the Romans. In fact, at the time of, the, of Israel, the New Testament, we see that the boundary of the Persian and Roman Empire is the, is the land of Israel. And that's why when the Magi, who are Persian priests, come into uh, the kingdom of Herod, he is, thinks that the Persians are trying to make kind of, you know, a power grab and put their own, you know, chosen king on the throne because Herod is the chosen of Rome. And when they say to him, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Herod, in his mind, sees that as a Persian power play. So we see the Persians are not destroyed as a power center by the Greeks. They continue to compete with the West, whether it's with Greece, whether it's with Rome, whether it's with the Western part of Rome and, and the European you know, colonial powers, Portugal and all that stuff, or Britain, um, or, or America today, or whether it is with Russia from the north, or even the eastern part of the Roman Empire that falls to Islam and the theocratic system of caliphates are created, they fight with the Persians to this day. So the Persians are always there. The Greeks, the, you know, this imperial system that becomes the birthplace of the Roman one continues to still exist to this day. The eagles of Rome from Moscow to D.C. have the industrial edge, the political edge, the economic edge. They are still the most powerful of all of these layers. So it's important to understand that these empires are simultaneously in existence. To this day, they are simply overpowered by even a larger power system that they compete with. But the book of Revelation um, tells us that the empire of this final leader is 
Now the beast that I saw was like a leopard, his feet like a bear, and his mouth a lion, and the dragon gave him his power. But those animals are the ones that Daniel in chapter 7 identifies each as one of these empires, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. The book of Revelation clicks them together into one. So we see that that if I were to say, where is this thing going to come from? I would say since the Bible focuses from the time of Daniel on these four empires, the Persians, the Greeks, um, the, the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, then first of all, it will come from that, from that part of the world, from Iran into the Sunni Middle East, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Turkey, all of these things, really the, the, the final empire that dominated that part of the world was the Persian imperial system. And now we see that at the end times, if we are in the end times, and I believe we are because of the return of the Jewish people in 1948, I think that really opened us to the birth bang years. We see that, that Iran suddenly grew out of the blue into power and now has taken over the whole of the Middle East and continues to push to take over the whole of the Middle East. So, All right, given what you've just told me, where he might come from, let me throw out a name. How about the president of Turkey, Erdogan? Yeah. He fits the bill. Well, no, because what has to happen is, is that the, the Western world, so you see that Russia tries to put its power into the Middle East, into this older empire, and different heads of the West, whether it's Britain, whether it's America, whether it's France, they put their kind of you know forks into this ancient empire. And right now they're kind of negotiating this thing and, you know, is going to come into, into play, into focus. They're finally going to click properly into a hierarchy they can live with. The eagles of the West. And, the, and then we will see the ten heads appear, the ten horns appear. Then we will see the ten toes appear. Once these two parts of the world click together right now, they're negotiating still. So, that, you know, they're trying to get... The, the, the clerical regime in Iran to 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 bow down and submit, um, you know, so so Turkey is one of the heads of the older empire of the Persians, essentially, because it stretched all the way to Asia Minor. So so the head the Turkey qualifies as one of the heads. Now, which one of these heads of these 10 from where does it come from? Well, it is true that he's mentioned the, the Assyrian. In, in several passages of the Old Testament. That is another title given to him in Micah chapter 5, in Isaiah chapter 10, and in Isaiah chapter 30, he's called the Assyrian. Probably one of the most interesting passages is Micah chapter 5, because that's a super famous passage. When the um, Magi's leave, um, Herod turns around to the scribes and says, I want to get to this guy before these guys do. Um, where is he supposed to be born? And the scribes look into the scroll. I mean, they don't have to look. They know it from memory. They immediately say to him, well, in Bethlehem, that's where he's supposed to be born. And uh, now um, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ufrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And everyone kind of closes the Bible and reads this at Christmas time. Oh, he's born to Bethlehem. Close the Bible. But if you don't close your Bible and you go down to the next few verses and you continue, therefore he shall give them up until the time when, when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod as its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Who is going to deliver the people from the Assyrian? He, the one who is born in Bethlehem, the one who is destined to be the king of Judah and ruler in Israel. He is the one that is going to free the people from this invading Assyrian. Now, at the time of Judah, at the time of Isaiah, the throne of Satan. So what are the seven heads? Because the book of the Revelation talks about seven heads and ten horns. Well, um, some people say that from the time God put his hand on Abraham to restore the families of the earth, seven empires challenged him. The first one was Egypt, you know, and we see the story of Exodus and all of that. The second was the Assyrians, and they came from the north, like Nineveh, um, and they destroyed the northern tribes, all of them, and they assimilated them. Only the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and Levi's, you know, in the south remained because the king was righteous, Hezekiah, and it lasted for a hundred more years. But then the Babylonians came. So that's the third empire. So Egypt is Syria, Babylon. Then the Medo-Persians came, the fourth empire. Then you had the Greek, the fifth, the Romans, the sixth. And the seventh head will be the one that's ahead of us. So so when these this, this scattered pieces of Rome unite in a more formal way and they click into the older empire which essentially there was the mesopotamian empires of assyria and of babylon but that was given to the persians and egypt also so essentially the persian empire became the final old empire before the west began so when these two click in together then we will see the 10 power centers that will be the big players and then we'll see which one this guy comes out of so where does he come from I think that uh, at the time of Isaiah, Assyria was the most powerful of, of the centers. And that's why he's called the Assyrian. It's like saying the Roman. You know, if, if he was living at the time of Rome, he would say the Roman. If he was living at the time of the Greeks, he would say the Greeks. But we need to examine several other passages. For instance, the fact that the ten horns exist on the fourth beast. Now, that's interesting because the fourth beast is the one that is the Roman beast. And there are other passages that point to, the, to, 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 I think, the final empire. And then there's also what we see before our eyes, that the most powerful center of the world is found still where the eagles of Rome stand from Moscow to D.C. It is the greatest military, the greatest economic power, the greatest political influence, far more, let's say, than the little country of Turkey or, or you know, the one Erdogan Islamist leader who is like, you know, 
just some little guy with a very weak economy and a so-so army, like, you know, powerful for the region, but not powerful, like, you know, compared to like the United States or, you know, so, so it's more so. And then the throne of Satan, which is important because when Rome in the West falls, it is from Germany that, that it rises again. And that's where the altar to Zeus is, which is called the throne of Satan by Jesus in, in, in Revelation chapter two. And we see, so for me, the old world, like Europe, Europe is the new Greece. And the new world is the new Rome, you know, that comes out of the heartland of the, of the reborn Greece. And the end times global manifestation of these imperial realities in our age is that Israel is back. Jerusalem is theirs again. The Persian power is extending again. And now the eagles of the West must unite again. And then I think it's from them that this guy will emerge because, you know, it's the most powerful region of the world. Which one of the eagles? I suspect the United States because English is the main language of the world. Um, English, America is where people look for inspiration to. And it's interesting when the Masons decided, like Lord Bacon, he says they chose Washington as their center. And there's all the Masonic, you know, reality that's in Washington. And you really see that Washington is isolated. You know, it's safe. It's got two oceans and then the North Pole and, you know, and it's and there's no other like it in this continent. No, there's only one capital that powerful as opposed to the little heads. It does have more like little horn feel to it. it is something different and unique and isolated. And from here, it kind of dominates. So I think I think that I don't see a German leader that would not inspire the world. I don't think a Russian leader would. But because of rock and roll, because of the importance of English, because of Hollywood, because of the landing on the moon, and because of Kennedy and Obama and characters like that, I think it is the Washington that it's from there that the horn will come. Let's stop it right there. This is going to be part one. We're going to do a part two. Are you good for that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Alicia Adetan. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.